following message is presented by First Baptist Church of Morgan City, Louisiana. For more information, go to the website www.fbcmc.org. Now the message. If you have our Bibles tonight, we are in Galatians chapter 5. Paul has spent the majority of his time in this epistle, uh, this letter to the churches of Galatia. Probably not one church in specific, but many churches in an area or a region. Uh, he spent the majority of his time so far uh, discussing the law, uh, defeating the Judaizers and the false teachers, those who say that there are certain things uh, that must still be adhered to the law that add to your faith. And Paul says that is not the case. Uh, we reach the point now where he's making this transition from his warnings uh, to the church to his teaching part. Uh, he, he is putting in the crucial blows here on the Judaizers as we wrap up or, or reach the midpoint of chapter 5. We've seen the Apostle Paul just like a boxer uh, strategically placing each and every blow and he is moving in for the punch that will knock their lights out on this one. A couple of weeks ago in chapter 4, we saw him use an allegory, uh, a story of two actual ladies uh, that uh, described two different sides of those who uh, either abide by the law or are free from the law. And now we see him using several other things here tonight um, to counter or, or beat them at their own game. And so strategically... Uh, he is setting the stage uh, not only to take out the Judaizers, but also to uh, discuss with the churches at Galatia about those who walk in the Spirit and those who follow after the lust of the flesh. We'll be getting into that um, after the revival week is over with and we continue our study through the book of Galatians. So we have a group here that meets uh, on Tuesday nights, uh, it is a chess club. I do not know how to play chess. Uh, it doesn't look like a real fun, active game to me. Uh, they invited me to sit in and, and join them and, and maybe learn from them. And uh, nobody moved. I mean, I sat there for a good 10 minutes. And it was, and I know it's all strategy. I, I got to give my... My credits where credits is due. I know that there's a lot of thinking involved, and each and every move is critical. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's moving in for the checkmate. He's moving in for the killer blow. And so you may be thinking like that. You may be working with someone right now, and we've talked a lot about witnessing. We've talked a lot about apologetics, and that's exactly what it is. Uh, and that's strategically placing your words in your conversation, uh, just like a chess match. Uh, you're not in it to win the argument. You're in it to win a soul. Uh, if we leave out of the argument and we've missed the opportunity to lead someone to Jesus Christ, we've totally missed what God set that opportunity up for. So Paul once again points to the law. What is the law for and what fulfills the law? What he does is he summarizes it all right here at the end of this passage he say, look, if you miss out on this aspect of the law, everything else that you're teaching is null and void. Just like a skillful boxer, uh, he's moving in for the crushing blow, but he's also skillfully setting up what he's going to teach 
Next, as he covers the battle between the works of the flesh and the fruits of the Spirit. Probably when you think of the book of Galatians, you think of the fruits of the Spirit that's listed later on in chapter 5. And that is what he is setting the stage for. His, his focus for the majority of this letter thus far has been on defending, first of all, his apostolic authority. They've kind of downplayed his role as an apostle because they knew him from his pre-conversion days. They knew that he was a teacher of the law at one point in time. And they don't understand this transformation and this conversion that he's undergone. But he's also spent a lot of time warding off the Judaizers to this young first century church in the area of Galatia. So also in many of Paul's epistles and especially in this letter, he focuses a lot on conflict resolution. Uh, he addressed the church at Corinth about conflicts that he had heard about there. He's mentioned conflicts that he's heard about or rumors that he's heard about from the churches here at Galatia. So he spends a lot of time in his epistles and letter focusing on conflict resolution, but also he does it through the subject of Christian love. If you remember, I've told you before, anytime you see something listed in the Bible, the number one thing on that list, the thing that you see first, is usually the most important thing that the writer is trying to get out, just like ingredients on a recipe. When you read through a recipe, normally the thing that they list at the top, that is your key ingredient, that is your main ingredient, that is the thing that matters the most. And when we get to the fruits of the Spirit, what's number one at the list? The fruit of the Spirit is love. And that's what the Apostle Paul summarizes this passage with the greatest commandment. Here's the question on the floor tonight. Here's what I want you to think of as we move through this passage and as we cover these three points. Does the greatest commandment, what is the greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these two things hang the whole law. Let me ask you this. As we think about this, does the great commandment have a strong connection with the great commission? Absolutely it does. But are the two inseparable, the great commission and the great commandment? Love God, love others, and then go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. Do, do, are those two inseparable? I, I would say yes. How closely are they connected? You cannot have one without the other. It's impossible. If you're going to go out and preach the gospel, you've got to have a love for other people. Just like we discussed this morning, your heart has to be broken over the condition that they're in. Can you fulfill one and not fulfill the other? I would say no, you can't. How can you love the Lord if you're not going to go tell people about him? How can you go out and tell people about him if you really don't love him yourself? So keep that in mind as we go through this passage. Beginning in verse 7 of chapter 5, the apostle Paul says this. He says, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? He stated this several times about this church. He said at some point in time, it seemed like someone has cast a spell under them. And another time he said he was shocked that they had fallen away so quickly. And here it is here. You ran well. At some point in time he said you were running well. What in the world happened? Who hindered you 
from obeying the truth. You might as well say that you were a ball of fire at one time or another. Who threw water on your fire? Who extinguished your fire? Who stomped your fire out? And why are you not burning as brightly right now as you once were? He says, this persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. In other words, he doesn't know who the ringleader is in these Judaizers. He doesn't know who the number one false teacher is. But he says there's someone that's been troubling you. And he's going to bear the judgment at some point in time. Verse 11. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. This is very graphic language here. And in just a moment, I'm going to read it in another translation. But it means exactly what it says. He's dealing with the issue of circumcision. Some translations call it mutilation. And this is very, very graphic language that the apostle, probably the most graphic language he's used throughout this epistle so far. He says, but I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Verse 13, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. That's what we discussed in our last message, in our last study. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made you free. He says, for you, brethren, you have been called to liberty. Here's the caution that he's given to them. Do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. The word love is mentioned twice in this passage. It means a couple of different things. Remember, you've got to look at it in its context. Here it is used as a noun. He said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the second part, he used it. Verse 14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Father God, we thank you for your word. And we just thank you for the message that you want to speak to us, Lord. God, I still think about how you showed up this morning, Lord God, how you stirred our hearts, how sweet the worship time was, Lord God, and, and the way that you spoke to me as I prepared for that message this morning. I pray that you'll do the same again tonight, Lord God. While we are fewer in numbers, your word still says that where two or three are gathered together, there you are in the midst of them. And Lord, I I see more than two or three here tonight, so I know that your Holy Spirit wants to do a work among us. And so I pray, Lord God, that you'll speak to us tonight on a level, and first of all, which we can relate to, and number two, in a way that we can benefit from, Lord God. If there's something in this uh, message tonight that we're lacking, I pray that you'll help us to um, accomplish it and activate it and put it to use and apply it to our lives. We thank you for your word, and we thank you for what you're going to do. We just ask it in Jesus' name, amen. What fulfills the law? What is Paul talking about here in this passage? 
I'm going to go ahead and give you all three points. He's talking about one mind. He's talking about one message. And he's talking about one motive. He's saying for you to really fulfill the law, you must be of one mind. You must have one message. And you must have one motive that keeps you going. One mind. He says, you ran well, but who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not not come from him who calls you. That word persuasion there in the Greek actually means the art of persuasion. In other words, someone has masterfully come in and persuaded you to think otherwise. So let me ask you this. I think that works two ways. We're going to see things working in two different directions throughout this passage. Here's the first thing. If the Judaizers were persuasive enough to move the Galatian churches in an area that they should not have been going in, to persuade them that circumcision was completely necessary for your justification, let me ask you this. What do we need to do to persuade people otherwise? Is our persuasion strong enough? Are we persuasive enough in our witness, in our testimony, in our apologetic efforts? Or do we fall for the persuasion of others? Look, I think that old hymn, I shall not be moved, I, I think it's there for a reason. I think it was written for a reason. And there are some times where you just need to dig in your heels. You need to hold tightly to your beliefs. And like he says here in the opening of chapter 5, stand fast in the liberty. Don't let others persuade you down a road that you don't need to be going in. Are our warnings powerful enough? Is our proclamation of love convincing enough? Do we persuade others that we really, really love God by the way they see us loving each other? You see, it is our role as Christians, it is our role as witnesses to persuade others to come into a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. He says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are all well known to God, and I trust also uh, are well known in your consciences. Who have you recently persuaded? Have you persuaded someone to do something that they should be doing? Have you persuaded someone to go in a direction opposite of the direction that they're traveling in? It doesn't take much persuasion in my house to get a half gallon of Bluebell from Walmart. Hey, you know what my favorite flavor is this time of year? Well, yeah, I know what it is. You're trying to persuade me to get something that I wasn't intending to get at that time. When's the last time you've actually persuaded someone to read their Bible. When is the last time you've suggested to someone, hey, taste and see that the Lord is good and blesses the man who trusts in him? Are we persuasive enough in our witness? Are we of one mind? Are we thinking about what the Lord 
wants us to do and say to people to help persuade them into a relationship with him. But here the apostle Paul is saying, you will have no other mind. He's saying, stand fast in your liberty. Be strong in your convictions. But one thing you all need to do, you need to have one mind about this Christian liberty that you live in. Yes, you're free. You're free from your sin. You do have obligations to live for the Lord. But what these Judaizers are teaching you, you, if you'll stay focused and have one mind, you can overcome that. And he's saying the the false teaching that they're placing in, the, the persuasion that they're trying to lead you in, he says it's like leaven and a lump of bread. He says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And this is a picture, an analogy that they could closely relate to. Normally when you see leaven in the Bible, it's a picture of sin. That's why when we observe the Lord's Supper, we have unleavened bread because we want it to be free of leaven, free of sin. It only takes a little bit of influence to make a huge impact on someone, either for the positive or for the negative. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. But what Paul is saying here, he says, a little bit of false teaching will slowly and surely begin to spread until the whole lump of dough is infected with it. If you've ever had the opportunity to taste of one, Miss One Susie Sanford's homemade rolls, let me just tell you, it's a life-changing experience. <laughs> I, I've had the opportunity to watch this whole process. It's not just something you do in 20 or 30 minutes. It's something that takes place over the course of a couple of days. She starts off with this little jar. It's got some solids in the bottom of it, some liquids on the top of it. And when it starts activating, it looks like a lava lamp. <laughs> There's something constantly moving, constantly growing. That's that leaven and that yeast becoming activated. And then they put it in the leaven and the flour, and it's all mixed together. And then they let it sit for a little while, lets it activate even more. That leaven is moving its way. That yeast is moving its way through the bread as it grows. And it impacts eventually the entire lump of dough that they're working on. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is saying here. If you'll be of one mind, if you'll set your mind on heavenly things and not on earthly things, this false teaching, this leaven that the Judaizers are trying to place in, it will not have any persuasion or influence on you. But here Paul is referring to the leaven of the Judaizers, the false teaching. And he's saying that a little leaven in the lump leads to persuasion, ruining the whole bunch of you. But now just think about the flip side of that. As I, as I tell, told you a while ago, we're, we're going to think about these in two different directions. Think of the flip side of that. If a little bit of zeal for Jesus Christ caught on in a church, what would it do? If someone would really stand up and say, I'm on fire for the Lord, I believe he's got a vision for our church, I believe he wants us to go and he wants us to grow, and that starts taking root and that starts impacting the whole lump, what would it do? 
I looked for it in our hymn book a while ago. There's an old, old song. It says, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. And soon all those around can warm up in its glowing. That's how it is with God's love. Once you've experienced it, you spread his love to everyone. You want to pass it on. A little bit can go a long, long way, either for the positive or for the negative. A bad attitude can ruin a whole group of people. But if you get someone that is on fire for the Lord with a positive attitude, they're upbeat, they're very, very optimistic about what's going on, soon you know it starts to grow. Be of one mind. I I think it's probably a given that we're not all going to wholly agree on everything, every decision that we faced. That's why we vote in business meetings. That's why we vote in these committee meetings because everyone has a say-so and if someone's going to see something in a little bit different angle, but there are some things that are, they're just not a hill that you're going to want to die on, but there are some things that you do want to take a stand on. I'll give you an example. I think that pineapple most definitely goes on pizza. (laughs) Not everybody's going to agree with that, are you? But you've got a right to your opinion. If we were to take a vote on it, we probably would not be all of one mind. (laughs) Some people like pineapple. Some people think it's nasty and disgusting. I'll give you another example. I like using the New King James Version of the Bible. Some like the NIV Some stick with the old 1611 King James Version, red letter, (laughs) leather bound, whatever you want. Look, that's not a hill I'm going to die on, though. I read from the New King James Version when I preach because it's probably one that everyone can closely relate to no matter what translation they're using. A lot of times when I'm doing my personal study, I'll look up several different translations. But are we all going to be of one mind on that one topic? No, we're not. However, the one thing that we must remain of one mind on is this, the death, the burial, the resurrection, and the nearing return of Jesus Christ. Reach the lost and make disciples. If we can be of one mind on those things, All this persuasion that the false teachers and the false prophets are going to bring, we can resist it. We can stand against it. Our minds must be set on reaching the lost with the gospel of Jesus Christ and not teaching some rigid form of legalism or spending time in the theological arena defending doctrine. How many souls are going to be won by that? You preach Jesus Christ, death, buried, risen, and coming again soon. You're going to win souls with that. You just preach the Bible. It's going to defend itself. If you'll preach the scriptures, 
Here's what Charles Spurgeon had to say about that. He said, to win a soul is a more glorious achievement than to be crowned in the area of theological controversy. Yes, there are some doctrines that we need to say, this is a hill I'm going to die on. I'm going to take my stand on it no matter what. Paul may not have known who the ringleader was in this particular situation, but we know who the one is that wants to create chaos and division here among us. His name is Satan. He's walking about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's the master of chaos and confusion. He's the seeker of division, and that's what he wants to do. He knows if he can get, keep us divided over those small secondary and tertiary matters, he's got the battle won. But when we are of one mind, we got it made. There's nothing that will stand in our way. One message. Paul calls it here the offense of the cross. And that's exactly what it is. To some, it is very, very, very offensive. You talk to someone about God, you're probably not going to get much resistance. But when you start talking about Jesus Christ as the Messiah and the Savior, that's when you're going to start getting some people offended. Let me ask you this. Has there ever been a time in your life where the cross of Calvary has been offensive to you? What evidence did the Judaizers have uh, that Paul ever taught circumcision as a means of justification? He talks about a couple of different things in verse uh, 11 and 12. He says, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? In other words, he's saying, if I would go along with their teaching, I would get no resistance whatsoever from them. He says, but I preach the offense of the cross. Therefore, I'm getting persecuted. They're downplaying my role as an apostle. And he said, that's why I'm suffering all of this persecution. He says, because I'm preaching the cross and it's offensive to them. But here he talks about uh, they are calling him uh, someone who preaches circumcision. Where do they get that reference from? Why are they saying that Paul is one who preaches that circumcision is a means of justification? They could possibly be referring to two different cases. Uh, either they are referring to his pre-conversion days when he was indeed a teacher of the law or they were making reference to the fact uh, that Paul recommended that Timothy would be circumcised in the book of Acts. Following along with his Jewish roots, uh, he, he made that suggestion. He said, for you to continue on in the ministry, uh, this is something that you most likely need to do. Verse 12. Verse 12 is by far the strongest and most graphic statement Paul makes in this passage. Probably the whole letter. Uh, the word circumcised here is actually the word meaning to mutilate or to castrate. Uh, pretty graphic, uh, pretty blunt. Let me read it to you in the New Living Translation. I looked that up a while ago. Verse 11, he says, Dear brothers and sisters, if I were still preaching that you must be circumcised, as some say I do, 
Why am I still being persecuted? If I were no longer preaching salvation through the cross of Christ, no one would be offended. I just wish that those troublemakers who want to mutilate you by circumcision would mutilate themselves. So the Apostle Paul is making some very, very blunt points here. The Apostle Paul is saying, look, I wish that they would just cut themselves off completely from what's going on here, that they would just get it over with and get out of the way. He says, but as far as I'm concerned, their accusations against me are completely false. They're looking at my past life. They're not looking at what I'm preaching right now. And the reason I'm creating friction with them is because I'm preaching that they must repent of their sins and confess that Jesus Christ is the Messiah and the Savior. See, and there's one message, one message only that you need to be focused on, and that's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. One motive. Here's where he wraps it up. What fulfills the law? He brings it all to a head right here. He summarizes it. And basically he says, if you miss out on this, you've completely missed out on the whole purpose of the law. Verse 14. He says, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, love. Even in this, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. And just like he has done so many times in this letter, he's beating them at their own game. He is referring back to the book of Leviticus. We're going to get to that in just a moment. So here the apostle Paul, the former teacher of the law, is indeed pointing directly to the law itself. And once again, beating the Judaizers at their own game. If indeed you are going to remain focused on the one, this one matter of the law, then let me remind you of the overall purpose of the law. Let's look at a book that we typically overlook. Turn to Leviticus chapter 19. Paul's not hinting, he's not beating around the bush, but he is making a very specific and very direct reference to the law, the purpose of the law. And one quotation from the law, Leviticus 19, verses 17 and 18. He says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people. And here it is right here. But you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Direct quotation right here in verse 14. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love as it is related to in the commandments. When you look at the Ten Commandments, the first four commandments are a direct reflection of a person's love for God. Not out of obligation, but out of obedience. If you don't get the first four commandments right, there's no way in the world you can ever fulfill or accomplish the remaining six commandments. The word love here 
Remember, it must be looked at in context. <clears throat> Here, verse 14. Uh, excuse me, verse 13. It's first used in verse 13, and it is the Greek word agape. It's a word that we're familiar with. Uh, three different kind of loves when you look at it in the Greek language, but here agape is an unconditional love. And in the context here, it's used as a noun that describes Christian love for others. Second time it's used in verse 14, uh, it's once again the same word agape, but in its context it's used a, as a verb and not a noun. And it describes the ability to show love or to demonstrate love. He said, here's what the law is all about. Love your neighbor as yourself. And in verse 13, I find it's very, very interesting that he connects the noun love along with the verb serve. But through love, serve one another. Folks, I don't think there's any other way that we can serve each other than through love. I don't think there's any way that we can minister to one another than through the love that is within us, that God has placed within us. And he even confirms this point by saying something in verse 15. Also another illustration that would have been common in this time. He says, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. So he takes this matter of love and serving each other through love and flips it around. He said, here's what's going to happen if you don't love each other. And here's what's going to happen if you don't serve one another in love. If you fall for this false teaching, if you fall for legalism, and if you don't live your life, standing fast in the liberty and the freedom that the Lord has given to you. You're going to bite and you're going to devour and you're going to eventually consume one another. Bite and devour. Here, these two verbs are often used in the original language to describe the actions of wild animals or cats and dogs. Or in my language, it could be used to describe my wife's sweet little puppy dog, Chewy. Because <laughs> if you get too close to his food bowl, that's exactly what he wants to do. He wants to bite and devour you. It's not even funny sometimes. I, I can predict it. I can see when it's going to happen because he kind of gets this little snarl on his lip and starts showing. He gives you a little bit of a warning. But what he wants to do, man, he thinks he, he will just bite and devour and consume you completely. But the reference here that Paul is pointing to uh, is most likely derived from uh, Egyptian, Greek, and Gnosticism symbolism. The symbol, you're probably familiar with the symbol. Uh, it's called Eroboso. And uh, you most likely seen it before. It's a circle. It's either one snake that curls back around and has his t own tail and his own mouth, or it's two snakes. One snake has the opposite snake's tail and his mouth, and same with the other one there. And what they're doing, some say it's a symbol for infinity, but eventually what would happen is they would consume one another till there's nothing left. And eventually, 
it brings an end to both of them. Paul would have been familiar with this symbol. He would have been familiar with this illustration. And he's saying, look, if you go round and round and round on this matter of legalism, if you practice what these Judaizers are teaching you, and you don't learn how to love one another, there's not going to be anything left. There will be no church. There will be no future for the gospel. He said eventually it's all going to come to an end because you're chasing something that you cannot attain. But if you serve one another in love, and if you learn to love one another the way that it is described in the Ten Commandments, and you don't worry about all this stuff that they're teaching, that's when you're going to fulfill and truly fulfill what God is trying to teach you here in the law. He says, but if you live your lives chasing after something that you'll never attain, you'll just completely consume one another. And if you can't serve one another out of love, you're going to self-destruct. Adrian Rogers uses this poem all the time. It, It describes this situation. He says, to live above with those we love. Oh, how that will be glory. But to live below with those we know, (laughs) that's a different story. (laughs) That's a group of people that's not living in love for one another. What is it that really motivates you? I mean, what makes you get up in the morning and say, I want everything I do today to imitate Jesus Christ? What is it that makes you say, I want my primary objective to be loving others through practical means for the glory of Jesus Christ? So what is our primary objective as followers of Jesus Christ? Our primary objective is to glorify God. Isaiah 43, 7 says this, everyone who is called by my name whom I have created for my glory, I have formed him. Yes, I have made him. And Paul summarizes it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Therefore, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That's our primary objective. And when we serve one another through love, We're bringing honor and glory to God Almighty. And how do we achieve that primary objective? The Ten Commandments, Commandments 1 through 4, love God. Matthew 22, 37, Jesus said, you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. That's the number one commandment. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, the Shema. Oh, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, and you shall love the Lord God with all your heart, all soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Our primary objective is to love God. And along with that are commandments 6 through 10, all having to do with how you treat others. Matthew 22, 39, Jesus said the second commandment is just like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. 
And on these two commandments, you can hang everything else. In other words, if you can't accomplish these two, if you can't love God and if you can't love other people, then there's no sense in you even trying to attain the rest of the law. Who do I love? Who is my neighbor? And who is the Apostle Paul talking about here? You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. I don't think he's talking about everyone within the confines of our congregation. He's talking about everyone. He's talking about those in the outside, those in the lost world. There will be some people that you meet and possibly some that enter into our congregation that you find this difficult to do. I want to remind you of something. When Jesus was here on this earth, in his three years ministry, he never turned anyone away. He never said, get away from me. I don't want nothing to do with you. Think about all the people that he touched when he was here on this earth. The blind, the deaf, the lepers. Not only did he talk to them, but he loved on them. Can you imagine that first leper that he laid hands on? I mean, this man had been a castaway from society. Couldn't be around his family. Couldn't be, haven't, hasn't felt the human touch from anyone. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son and his only son came to this earth and he laid hands on the dirtiest person that was walking in that society at that time. Someone that nobody else wanted to love on and be around. Jesus Christ himself exhibited true love and said, you know what? I love you and I came for you as well. That's the kind of love that we should be showing to others. John Bailey had this to say about living your life in love, serving in love. And I quote, let my life today be the channel through which some little portion of your divine love and pity may reach the lives that are nearest to my own. Here in our congregation, we have the opportunity to live with one mind, one message, and one motive. And as the outside world watches what's going on here at First Baptist Church, what are they seeing? Are they seeing us love on each other unconditionally? Are they seeing us taking advantage of every opportunity that we have to serve those in our community that nobody wants anything to do with. Every head bowed and every eye closed. As our musician comes to the piano to lead us in a hymn of invitation. Take just a moment and search your heart. Think about what God sees when he's observing your life and your heart and your mind, your actions. 
Are, are they pleasing to him? What about your thoughts? The things that occupy your idle time? Are you thinking of ways that you could serve others? Are you thinking of ways that you could increase your love for the Lord by serving others? Are we serving one another with love the way the Lord created us to? Preceding message was presented by First Baptist Church in Morgan City, Louisiana. For more information about a relationship with Jesus Christ or about First Baptist Church, including contact info, go to the website www.fbcmc.org. Thank you for listening, and may God bless you.